0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. What
1: up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the No Sabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, ears edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to
0: Stuff You
4: Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the
5: podcast. I'm Holly Brown, And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Today's episode... If you uh, happen to look at the title, which is The Pastry War, it sounds like a food episode, but do not get excited because pastries really only factor into the whole equation mildly. But this is kind of interesting because it's one of those episodes where a bunch of significant history events all kind of rub up against each other. Uh, so we're going to talk about Mexico just after the Texas Revolution. We're going to talk a little bit about the French Revolution and the dwindling monarchy of that country. And we are even going to talk about a funeral that's been requested by several listeners over the years. Uh, the one that we recall probably most recently, although I think it's actually been a while, was Tabitha who requested it. So when we get there, you'll know that that was Tabitha and many other
0: people asking for it. So, yeah, we're going to talk about the Franco-Mexican pastry war we're going to start with a little bit about Mexican independence. In 1821, Mexico gained its independence from Spain. But as a newly independent country, Mexico was really mired in internal conflict for years afterward. The government and rebel forces were almost constantly at odds with each other. And there was a lot of rioting and street fights and looting. Those were just everyday occurrences. We should also point out that when we say the government... We aren't really talking about a single stable entity during that time. There were constant claims being made for the presidency of the newly independent nation. And the leadership of that nation was just changing over and over and over.
5: So one of the main catalysts for this story actually happened in 1828, although the story itself won't take place for some time. But at this point in 1828, uh, Manuel Gomez Pedraza was president of Mexico, at least by election results. Uh, when Pedraza attempted to remove the governor of the state of Mexico, who was Lorenzo de Zavala, from power, Zavala called on his ally, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, for help. And President Pedraza was quickly overthrown. And is, as is often the case during times of political rebellion, major riots erupted.
0: A French-born pastry chef named Romantel had a bakery shop in Tacubaya, which was near Mexico City. Today, it's actually a section of Mexico City, but before the 20th century, it was a separate municipality altogether. And in 1828, the riots that broke out after Zavala seized the presidency, uh, his shop was actually destroyed by street fighting and then looted by Mexican officers. It's not actually clear which side of the rebellion the looters had actually been on, But with his pastry shop ruined, Romantel was put out of business.
5: And we should point out that this one pastry shop was certainly not the only business run by a French national that suffered in the skirmishes that were common in Mexico City at the time. Many businesses were damaged and many, particularly these French nationals that had kind of flocked there, were left with little recourse in the matter.
0: Monsieur Romantel petitioned for reparations to be paid for his lost business, but the Mexican government denied his claims repeatedly. Finally, after just hitting walls and trying to seek help and compensation for the damages, he turned to his home country of France.
5: And we're going to talk for a minute about the King of France at the time. So, King Louis-Philippe was the French monarch at a very precarious time for France. He had been born on October 6th of 1773, and Louis-Philippe was actually a relative of King Louis XVI. But despite his royal blood, he was really a supporter of the revolution. He fought for the French army in the 1790s, but he deserted in less than a year. In 1793, his father was one of the royal class that was executed during the Reign of Terror. And consequently, Louis-Philippe lived in exile from his home country for much of his life.
0: When Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated both times, Louis-Philippe returned to France, and when King Charles X abdicated after the July Revolution of 1830, it left a power vacuum that Louis-Philippe stepped into. He was sworn in as King of France on August 9, 1830, despite some detractors calling him a usurper to the throne. Those folks who were known as legitimists believed that Charles X's grandson should be the one to become king.
5: Yeah, and just for clarity on our comment about Napoleon being de- defeated both times and Louis-Philippe returning to France, he came back after the first time. And then when things got a little dicey, he left again and went to England. And then when Napoleon was defeated again, then Louis-Philippe returned to France uh, and got involved in all of the, the politics. Uh, he was called the Citizen King. He actually took the throne under a revised governing charter that actually limited the power of the monarchy. But he didn't really deliver on his potential to bring class equality and stability to France. He soon began ruling almost as though that limiting charter wasn't in place. He took a really autocratic approach to things. And instead of looking after the interests of the poor and the working class, as everyone had believed he was going to, he instead was known to favor the wealthy in his decisions.
0: Additionally, France hit extremely difficult economic times in the 1830s, which only fed the unrest in the country and the distrust of Louis-Philippe. Many attempts were made on his life. Yeah, he had like
5: eight assassination attempts, so uh, not wildly popular. But before we get into Louis-Philippe's dealings with Mexico, uh, I would love to pause for just a moment and have a word from one of the sponsors that keeps our show going.
1: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: We started talking about this incident drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From Podcasts. It's
2: like the police knew who he was before they got here.
6: A story about money, power, and corruption.
0: While Mexico had been fighting the Texas Revolution, it had needed money, quite a bit of money. And it had borrowed a tidy chunk of that money from France. Lending out the money hadn't exactly made Louis Philippe very popular with his people. And in early 1838, there had been no repayment on these debts that had been accrued. France's king was fretful under, over his country's economic times, and he was growing very irritated about Mexico defaulting on the loans. And
5: so it was at this time, a decade after that pastry shop that we mentioned uh, was looted and destroyed, that Monsieur Remontel, who had owned the pastry shop and had been trying for all those years to get money from the Mexican government, finally was able to speak to the French king about how his business had been collateral damage in Mexico's internal power struggles.
0: Louis-Philippe was sympathetic to Remontel, so sympathetic that French diplomat Antoine-Louis de Faudy, asked all French citizens living in Mexico to itemize and invoice all of their goods so that France would be able to clearly assess the damages that had been caused to their property by the ongoing violence. For
5: Monsieur Montel's losses, France added 60,000 pesos to its demand on Mexico to hustle with repayment of those war loans. And in total, France called for 600,000 pesos from Mexico. This was a, a huge sum at the time. And in truth, the shop had actually only been valued at about 1,000 pesos. And this was a shop that was kind of a fancy pants bakery. It, it was definitely not like a, a little small rundown thing. This was in a really nice part of town at the time. Uh, so that 60,000 pesos number is sometimes explained as having been arrived at as the sum that Remontel could have expected from a lifetime of running that shop. But in fact, Mexico just did not have that kind of money at the ready.
0: France also wanted a trade agreement with Mexico. There had been efforts to actually establish one outside of the demand for repayment of these outstanding loans. But now both of these issues were lumped together, perhaps in an effort to use this unpayable debt as a bargaining chip for Mexico to accept the trade terms that France wanted. The demands were tendered officially by diplomat Antoine-Louis Defaudy, and these mandates were issued with a sort of or-else ultimatum, with the threat that France would be satisfied one way or another, implying that there would be potential military action if they didn't agree to the trade. The ultimatum was issued on March 21st, 1838. Mexico had until May 15th to comply and make payment.
5: Mexico's Congress had until April 15th to answer these claims and say either we're going to make the payment or we'll deal with a trade situation. Uh, but it was very clear that Mexico had no intention of paying France this overinflated sum that it demanded and that neither were they terribly interested in agreeing to the terms of this trade agreement. So Defodi, working with the power given him by King Louis-Philippe, called up the military to make good on this or else portion of the ultimatum. So the day after the due date of Mexico's answer, which would have been April 16th, the French flotilla arrived.
0: Admiral Charles Baudin headed up the French Navy efforts at pressuring Mexico into forking over the loan money and agreeing to this trade agreement. French ships formed a blockade and prevented traffic into and out of Mexican seaports along the Gulf of Mexico, stretching all the way from the Rio Grande to the Yucatan Peninsula.
5: Mexico attempted to circumvent this blockade by having goods shipped instead into Texas ports and then carried overland into the country.
0: Then the United States got involved. As allies to the French and harboring their own issues against Mexico, the United States government offered the USRC Woodbury into the Gulf blockade to aid the French in their efforts to catch smugglers.
5: Yeah, they were kind of both helping with the bigger blockade and keeping an eye on the smuggling that was going into the ports of Texas. And this obstruction fleet, mostly French with a few uh U.S. ships, lurked there in the Gulf, hampering passage to Mexican ports until fall of that same year. So remember, this all started in April. It went on for quite some time. Various attempts at negotiations were made by the French, but the president of Mexico, Anastasio Bustamante, was unwilling to come to an agreement on the matter. And finally, in November, France was simply tired of this passive approach, and they decided that it was time to move more forcefully against Mexico.
0: On November 17th, Defadi met with Mexico's minister of foreign affairs at Jalapa, but that meeting resulted in no progress. Defadi was insistent that if Mexico had not accepted all demands within 10 days, the only possible next steps would be hostile ones.
5: The island fortress of San Juan de Ulua sat as a protective stronghold to keep the port city of Veracruz safe. And on November 27th of 1838, so again, 10 days after that meeting where nothing really happened, France launched a full-scale attack on this fortress. This stronghold had been a key defensive position in Mexican history. It had been in this defensive role since the mid-1500s. So when France attacked it, which made strategic sense because Veracruz was really like their ultimate port city. uh, But when France attacked it, it was perceived, it was not perceived exclusively as a strategic attack to get Veracruz, but also as something of an insult to Mexico's military history.
0: Mexico formally declared war on France just days later. Pustamante called for the conscription of all able-bodied Mexican men. But Mexico did not have the money to put in their, into their military, and San Juan de Ulua was raided with relative ease by the French Navy. They captured almost all of the Mexican Navy and then took command of their fleet within just a few days.
5: So outmanned by the French, Mexico made a rather bold and perhaps surprising choice. They looked to Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana to help. Or, more accurately, Santa Ana had heard about these various goings-on and Mexico's struggles and inability to defend themselves against the French, and he volunteered his services.
0: Initially, Santa Ana was sent to the fortress outside Veracruz to investigate the damage and make an advisement to the governor. He made his investigation, even as the fortress was being actively shelled, and then he reported back that things were too far gone, and that they should just surrender the island to the French.
5: And the governor did so on Santa Ana's advice, but that was a terrible decision. Uh, when President Bustamante heard of this move, he was infuriated, and he had the governor ousted immediately to be replaced with none other than, wait for it, Santa Ana. So we don't know if Santa Anna purposely gave poor advice to the governor in an effort to make potential re-entry into politics for himself. Uh, He was certainly wily enough for such a play, but we really just don't know. He may have thought that the fortress really was lost.
0: Now, it was not long before this that Santa Anna had been utterly disgraced at the Battle of San Jacinto, which, yes, we know today is pronounced San Jacinto in Texas. Sam Houston and the Texas militia fired up over the fall of the Alamo were able to defeat Santa Ana's troops, despite being really outnumbered almost two to one. Santa Ana had negotiated his release from the custody of the Texans by acknowledging Texas's independence. So at this point, he definitely was not seen as a war hero by any means.
5: But even though uh, that final battle had gone poorly, President Bustamante remembered how merciless and driven Santa Ana was capable of being, and he had frankly had it with this French invasion situation. The Mexican government was losing money on the blockade, and trying to defend that island fortress had further cost them dearly. And with their navy now in the hands of the enemy, things were looking extremely desperate.
0: Santa Ana put together a makeshift army to deal with the French navy that was occupying Veracruz. He also sent a message to the Admiral Baudin disavowing the surrender of the fortress. The next morning, Santa Ana was awakened to a full-on attack from the French, and he ordered his men to counterattack. True to the reputation that he had before the embarrassment at San Jacinto, he and his men quickly drove the French out of the city and back to the Gulf of Mexico. While chasing
5: after the vanquished French, however, Santa Ana was hit by grape shot fire from a cannon. Some accounts uh, describe it as his horse basically being shot out from under him uh, and his horse was killed and one of his legs was gravely wounded. And that leg had to be amputated. Uh, it was initially buried at Santa Ana's Veracruz Hacienda. Apparently, the surgery to remove that leg had been done kind of poorly. The surgeon hadn't left enough skin to properly close up around the bone of the remaining portion of Santa Ana's leg. And the skin that was there had to be overstretched when it was stitched closed. And this is said to have left Santa Ana with a great deal of pain for the rest of his life.
0: But even after the French Navy was driven out of Veracruz, the blockade continued. And France and Mexico were at war with one another for several more months. But without Santa Ana to lead the troops, Bustamante was forced to enter in negotiations, lest the French do even more damage to his already wounded country.
5: And Great Britain, which was an ally of Mexico, eventually sent a diplomat to help work out a peace agreement. And it was also in the British interests to foster a solution because that blockade was causing them trade troubles as well. Under the guidance of Sir Richard Pakenham, English minister to Mexico, an accord was finally reached. Mexico caved to France's demands, and they did agree to pay the full 600,000 pesos that had been demanded at the outset of the conflict over the course of six months. They also made a variety of other uh, agreements that the French had demanded. And so on March 9th of 1839, the French finally withdrew from Mexico.
0: And before we talk about the aftermath of this relatively minor war, we will pause for another word from a sponsor.
1: and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder...
6: a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: So in terms of how things played out after the pastry war, Santa Ana came out of that conflict with a boosted image. We're going to talk more on that in just a moment. Uh, But president Bustamante did not have the same luck. His image was quite weakened by the whole ordeal and again, the the country was already having fiscal problems. Uh, and after he temporarily stepped out of his role as president to deal with a conflict with Guatemala and then resumed his office, uh he didn't last. He was eventually overthrown by an uprising in 1841. And by the way, Santa Ana launched that uprising and he ended up becoming president of Mexico. And so about Santa Ana.
0: Yeah, the pastry war wound up being a true redemption story for Santa Ana. Even though Mexico ended up agreeing to pay France, his actions had cleared Veracruz of the French Navy men who occupied the city. He was actually a success in this case, and he was very happy to tell everybody so. He was also very quick to point out that he had lost a limb in service to Mexico.
5: Yeah, that apparently was one of those things he would bring up all the time. Uh, so when Santa Ana became president of Mexico again, because as we mentioned, there was a lot of turnover happening and there were several men that took the leadership role multiple times as various coups happened over and over and back and forth. Uh, but when Santa Ana became president of Mexico in 1842, he exhumed his leg from its resting place at his home. This is the thing that Tabitha asked us to talk about. And this leg was given a full military burial with all of the honors one would normally see bestowed upon a fallen soldier.
0: The leg was paraded through Mexico City in a coach like a war hero. An, an elaborate state funeral was mounted with poetry readings, speeches and cannon fire. The leg was reburied under a cemetery monument.
5: I, I have this um, cartoon version of this that plays in my head where people are making these orations about it It was a good leg. <laughs> it's just such a, a wonderfully odd and funny thing. But the other thing to think about is the fact that political tides turn. And so Santa Anna's leg did not stay in its fancy grave for very long. In 1844, just a couple of years after he became president that for that chunk of time, when public sentiment turned against Santa Ana, dissidents exhumed that leg yet again. So that's its second exhumation. And this time it was not to be given a better place. Instead, it was dragged through the streets of Mexico City on a rope while these people that had dug it up chanted death to the cripple.
0: Santa Ana was exiled from Mexico, but his life was nothing if not cyclical. In 1846, Mexico asked him to once again step in as a military leader in the Mexican-American War. When the United States made a surprise attack on his camp in 1847, the Mexican general fled. But in his haste, he left behind his prosthetic leg, and the Illinois infantry that had mounted the attack took it. So, that means basically Santa Anna lost the same leg twice in battle.
5: (laughs) Yes, one was his actual flesh and bone leg, and the other was a cork replacement, but he just couldn't hold on to that one leg. Uh, his captured prosthetic actually toured the United States, and then it went on display at the Illinois State Military Museum. Eventually, it was moved to a display at the Illinois State Capitol, and this has actually been an issue of contention between the U.S. and Mexico for years, as Mexico has asked that the leg be turned over to their government repeatedly. But much as Mexico repeatedly refused that French chef's request for reimbursement, so has Illinois refused pleas to return the leg of the historic general.
0: So, as for Francis King Louis-Philippe, he did manage to turn France's finances around for a little while. France entered a depression in 1846, and another revolutionary uprising followed in 1848. Louis-Philippe abdicated the throne on February 24th, 1848, and he traveled under the name Mr. Smith and fled to England, where he lived until his death on August 26th, 1850. He was the last king of France.
5: And that's the Pastry War, as it's sometimes called, which I think it's a fun name, but it's such a misnomer because it really has very little to do with pastry. Even if uh, you want to focus on Monsieur Remontel and his shop, it kind of seems to me <laughs> that it could have been almost anything at that point, since Louis-Philippe was really itching with some frustration at Mexico already it could have been almost any other catalyst as well for all we know this could be called some other entirely different war, depending on who had given him the information that really finally sparked this this series of demands to be made so that is the pastry war though as it is called normally it's fascinating i didn't even realize um <laughs> when i started researching it that it was going to end up being the um the whole santa ana thing i didn't uh you know, realize that the dust up over this pastry shop was so connected to the um, Texas and Mexico conflict and all of that stuff. So it's kind of one of those cool ones where a lot of things come together and kind of cohere. It helps connect the dots, I think, on the timeline of history. And now I have a little bit of listener mail. And speaking of the timeline of history, it actually refers back to an episode that was before Tracy and I's time. But, uh The person who wrote this to us is kind of talking about it in the bigger scope of, like, the cool things that can come out of this podcast, which is so sweet of her. And her name is Holly, so I automatically like her. (laughs) She says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I wanted to send you a postcard from one of the most interesting places I have ever been and thank everyone that is part of this podcast for making me aware that it existed. I really enjoyed the podcast and just recently finished listening to every episode, both archived and present. And as I listen, I love to imagine visiting the sites and cities that are subject from week to week. And every host has done such a fabulous job of keeping me intrigued and excited enough to have started a bucket list of places that I would love to see. I live in Kansas City, so visiting most of the places on my list is kind of a dream at this point. Imagine how excited I was when I got to the episode about Cahokia. As soon as Sarah and Dublina mentioned that this mysterious settlement was in Illinois, I abandoned everything that I was doing and jumped on the Internet to find out how far it was from Kansas City. I was filled with joy when I discovered it was only four hours from my front door. My family and I had already planned our summer vacation for June, and we had chosen to go to Chicago as our destination this year. The map was telling me that Cahokia was almost directly between Kansas City and Chicago. It was like fate. Visiting the site took my breath away, and I plan on returning in the fall so that I can walk the trails around the mounds in cooler weather. I'm sorry this note is so long, but I wanted to let you know how much this listener enjoys the podcast. And although I know it's exhausting work, uh, the story is just one example of how you've informed and inspired me. Thank you for all you do. I love that. History comes alive. Uh, it's Yay. so cool, and I hope that they had a great time in Chicago. As we know, that is one of my favorite cities. And I tweeted the other day that my best friend was at the field and I was very, very jealous. Uh, so thank you so much, Holly, for sharing that with us. I like when, you know, you follow up on something that you've heard and it ends up being a really cool experience. Hooray for history. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash mist in history on Twitter at mist in history. Pinterest.com slash history and at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We have a newish Instagram account which you can find at History, and if you would like to purchase history goodies you can do so at history.spreadshirtcom I feel guilty uh, that today's thing is named the pastry war and we didn't really talk about pastry very much. So if you would like to learn about pastries, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Uh, type in the words 10 pastries in the search bar and you will get an article called the 10 most decadent pastries ever conceived. It's not exactly a history article, but there's lots of delicious things. And like I said, I feel guilty that we named an episode the pastry war and we don't talk about delicious desserts at all. <laughs> so you can also visit us at mistinhistory.com uh, where we have all of those archived episodes that our listener, Holly, talked about. And we also have show notes for every episode Tracy and I have worked on. So we do encourage you to come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com.
6: For more
4: on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
1: issues affecting the latin community and much more then every thursday i'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community listen to life as a gringo on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever
2: you get your podcasts john stewart is back in the host chair at the daily show which means he's also back in our ears on the daily show ears edition podcast join late night legend john stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines exclusive extended interviews and more Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, ears edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest